Amen. Thank you, musicians and choir singers. Thank you for being a blessing to us this morning and leading us in song. It's a powerful song that Rod leaves us with. As we look to God's Word this morning, I want you to get your Bibles out or your tablets or your device open up to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, or you can grab the pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 1424. Basically, just go all the way to the back. If you get to maps, you went too far. Back up a little bit. Revelation 21, second to last chapter of your Bible. So we need to just set a few things straight before we read this morning. Uh, We need to know going into this conversation that we are in way over our heads. Way over our heads. We're like five-year-olds having a conversation about the complexity and splendor of the solar system. Having a conversation like we're going to have this morning. And yet, the Bible has called us to put our minds, to set our minds on things above. That God has told us the things that we need to know. He's commanded us to be heavenly-minded people. And yet, therefore, it's incumbent upon us to consider what he has to say about this topic. But if we go into this topic thinking that um, we have it all figured out or we maybe have any of it figured out just based on what has influenced your thinking on the topic of heaven, um, I know that the biblical doctrine of heaven and what the Bible has to say about it is is one of the most neglected topics in Christianity today. Uh, Certainly in current times, we haven't been helped at all by that. Hollywood has done uh, as much damage or more to the doctrine of heaven as anything else. And um, really just by putting out a bunch of ridiculous nonsense that Christians flock to, spend their money on, and get uh, brainwashed and misled into believing a bunch of nonsense that the Bible says otherwise about. And frankly, it's just what's disappointing about it is not the biblical uh, ignorance that leads people to believe such things, but really the fact that if what they said was true, it would be a great discouragement. That what the Bible has to say is infinitely better, infinitely better than anything you will ever read or see produced by man. And so it's just one of those areas where uh, I'm not going to be on this soapbox for long, but I'm going to be on it long enough for you to know that it's just an area where I am very passionate and sensitive because the Scripture is so amazing and wonderful with regard to what we know, and yet we clamor for uh, nonsense. With that in mind, let's look at something that is not Nonsense. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21, a familiar passage, but will, for many of you this morning, come alive in a very brand new way and will be greatly encouraging as we look at what Scripture says. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, the revelator John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That doesn't mean that there wasn't any ocean for those of you that are like, What? No fishing or... No, no, it means there's no separation by the sea, that all the land is connected together. We're not separated. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All the scriptures about weddings are kind of make me sensitive these days. I'm a little sensitive to these passages right now in my life. And uh, I just want you to think about how the scripture ends with a picture of a wedding. And how a wedding is a picture of this brand new beginning. And there, there may be no more hopeful time in a person's life than, than their wedding. And all the hope of, of everyone that's gathered there for what's coming in the future. And this newness, this new family, this new life that's being launched out. And yet the scripture brings everything to a close and uses the metaphor again of a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will wipe away, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things, these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let's pray. Father, as we now consider your word, we want to stop and recognize that you are the author. Though This is your voice speaking to us, Lord. And we need to understand that you are telling us things that we need to know that have great implications on today, on this week, on where we are right now. So, Father, I pray that you will give us ears that will hear from you this morning and that you will mold us and shape us the way you see fit. We'll welcome your hand today upon us. God, may your spirit work. As only he can, we give you glory and praise in advance for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to know some things about heaven uh, that maybe you have not considered before. First of all, um, those of you in the room, almost all of us in this room, no doubt, have lost someone that was very important to us. And probably uh, you are sitting there this morning thinking about them and thinking about the fact that they're in heaven. Now understand, they're not in the heaven that I just read in Revelation 21. That's to come. That's that The new heaven and new earth will be when we're all together. All together. When Jesus returns and gets us all and we're all resurrected and we all receive a resurrection body and we're all together in the new heaven and the new earth. So you say to yourself, well, where is my mom or where are my grandparents? They're in paradise with Jesus. That's where they are. And it's better than you could ever imagine in your wildest imagination. And yet, it's going to get even better when we're all together in the new heaven and the new earth, which is what I primarily want to talk to you about this morning. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page and understand that, first of all, what we use the term heaven universally. That means that if you're in Christ and you pass from this life to the next, you're in heaven. We don't get into the, uh, to the technicalities of it because it's all heaven and it's all glorious and it's all wonderful. But you need to understand when you're reading the Bible what exactly you're reading about. And so if you're reading Revelation 21 and you're thinking that's where your loved one is, well then, hello, you're still on the earth so it didn't pass away, right? 
right? The old earth is still here because we're on it. Amen. Be a good place for you to go. Amen. I'm paying attention. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. All right. Heaven has been designed and planned for from the very beginning of time for us. That heaven is not a reactionary development by God. Heaven is, is it's not just a piece of God that we can pick or choose, but from the beginning, it's always been the goal of God to dwell with us in perfection, always to have perfect fellowship with Him in perfection. And so it's not, it's not a place that God uh, devised just in a reactionary moment after the, the fall of Genesis 3 and the entrance of sin into the world. No, no. Heaven is a place where God's ultimate purpose is accomplished for His creation. And when I say creation, I mean primarily you and me. What is created in His own image. It's not, it's not an option that God uh, lays out there, but it has always been central and foundational to the purposes of God. Um, heaven is why you and me are alive today. You really need to understand that this morning. That the reason you exist, the reason you're here, is heaven. The reason God chose to create you and me to make uh, uh, people in his own image is heaven. God's plan from the beginning was to have perfect fellowship with us. And so we are in the midst of the story. But God in his graciousness and his goodness, he gives us the pieces of the story so that we can trace it together and see what's going on and know exactly where we are within the story. And furthermore, the conversation that we'll have this morning is probably the most defining thing about you, whether you realize that or not. That what you believe about eternity is the most defining thing about you. Contrary to popular belief, it's not your station in life that defines who you are. It's not your occupation or your... Uh, economic situation, it's not your marital status or your ability or skill to do anything, it's not your education, Uh, none of those things are ultimately what defines you. What ultimately defines you is eternity, and here's why. The reason that is the ultimate definer is because it is the only thing about you that is unchanging. That regardless of everything else that changes, see, because all the other things that, that tend to define us in our culture are things that ebb and flow and up or down. What may be true about you today may not be true about you tomorrow, but what will always be true about you is your eternal destination. Because it is what it is, and if it's ever changed, it can never change back. Amen? It can never change back. And so that is the unchanging definer of our lives. So I want, I want us to look at a couple things this morning in order to get a, a frame of reference so we can understand what, what the Bible's talking about in Revelation 21. The first thing we're going to have to back up to is we're going to have to start from the beginning. We're going to have to look at the garden. We, and if you, if you want to know about heaven, you got to start from the beginning. You got to read the whole story. You can't understand the last chapter if you don't understand the first chapter. That in the beginning... 
there was a garden, and the garden is important. The garden is not just some random uh, choice that God made. The word garden is not just a word that's stuck in there because we didn't know what else to call it. No, it's a very specific creation, and it was a very specific move by God to place creation in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, the Scripture says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Now, why a garden? That'd be a good question for you to ask. A good question for you when you're reading Genesis and you come through the creation account would be, why a garden? Why did God choose a garden? Why was he intentional? What was the purpose behind a garden, putting Adam and Eve in a garden? Well, it was designed specifically to accomplish his purpose. It was designed for them. It was designed to meet all of their needs. It was designed to to cultivate A perfect relationship between God and man. That's what the garden is. Think of it as an incubator of of perfect relationship with God and one another and everything around us. That all of the pieces of the puzzle that we would need to live in happiness and perfection existed in the garden. It was a place where God would dwell and he would meet with people and people would meet with him. So you can think of the garden sort of as a first temple. The garden was the first, uh, our inauguration into this. There's a place where we can meet God and God would meet with us. He dwelled there. Eden was a place where there was great fellowship between God and man, where, they would, where God would come and walk amongst Adam and he would be there and, and they're, they're, they knew his voice and he knew everything that was going on with them and together they just existed in this wonderful, uh, relatable atmosphere. But the garden also nourished and provided for its inhabitants. It, it was self sort of propagating, if you will. God gave it in all of its provision and all of its beauty to Adam to, to just think about what, what I just read to you in Genesis 2. To keep and to tend. In other words, the garden contained everything you would ever need. It, you didn't have to create anything. You didn't have to start anything. All you had to do was just tend it. Because it was doing it all itself. The Bible says in Genesis 2 verse 9 that out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that it was pleasant to the sight and good for food. In verse 12 the Bible says in the, and the gold of that land was good and bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And so it's this place of grand provision but also incredible beauty. And there's no need for Adam and Eve to worry. There's no need for them to fret. They'll they'll never lack anything. It just provides whatever is needed right there. Just watch over it and tend it. Now, think about how prior to sin, God has this plan with regards to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. In other words, prior to sin entering the story in Genesis chapter 3, God makes several commands to Adam and Eve about life in the garden. One of the commands that God makes in verse 28 of Genesis 1 is that he blessed them and then he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So this tells us that the plan of God 
was for the whole earth to be filled with Eden. In other words, for everyone to come after, for all the generations after to be enjoying what Adam and Eve were enjoying. This wasn't just some special place created just for them. It was created for all of us. That it was where we belong and where we long to be. That humanity would cover the whole earth and enjoy the experience of heaven or of Eden. So he wanted all that goodness to be, to be spread across the world. Now contrast that to what we find now in the New Testament, for example, in Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says that we know that the whole creation groans in pains of childbirth. So we've got now, we, we've moved from, from propagate the whole earth and fill it with all of the joy of living in Eden to living in a world that groans in pains of childbirth right up to the present time and is still groaning today. That even in our, on our best day, in the best moment, in the most beautiful place with the perfect weather and just overlooking whatever it is we're seeing, things are not as they should be. For me, it's, it's that moment where I'm, I'm looking at, at this beautiful picture of God's creation and I'm just sort of taking it all in and I'm just amazed at, at the splendor and glory of God and about that moment... A mosquito bites me. And I think, great, now I have the Zika virus. You see, that didn't happen in Eden. That, 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 listen, our, our best moments are tainted. There's no, there's no comparison. This whole creation is groaning to get back to what it's intended to be. It's broken, and it knows it, and we know it. We're the inhabitants of it. And all of us, if we really think about it, we we get accustomed to it because it's all we know. But really, our lives are filled with agonizing over the brokenness of the creation and the world in which we live in. Every single day is just another day of having to navigate and negotiate the brokenness of the world in which we live. Jesus comes into the world to mend the world. He starts the mending process. And that's why all, uh, when we leave the, the garden and the creation account and we start moving towards Jesus, things begin to change. Things start to, to, to speed up. There's like a, a new potential, a new hope starts to enter into the story. The Bible says in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus comes to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what does he say? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That there's clearly a change. That, that we, have, we have agonized from being banished from the garden. We have, lived, we have lived through all of the painful processes of moving out of the garden. And then Jesus comes on the scene and inaugurates something new that... Hmm, there's a time that's been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This very real thing is at hand. See, we're going to a real place, folks. We're not going to some ethereal, imaginary uh, fruitcake place that people make it sound like. Everything that I ever read or see about heaven, I wouldn't even want to go there. I don't even want to go there. I'm not interested in an eternal harp recital. No offense if you're a harpist. 
but that's not my deal. I'm not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in dancing around in a choir robe. No offense if you're a choir robe wearer, uh, but that's not my deal. Um, you know, I might could do some of those things for an hour, but after that, I mean, let's face it, eternity. I mean, I'm, I'm not floating around on clouds. I'm not into that. I'm just not into that. I mean, I'm not into a, a billion year church service. I'm not. I mean, and you would think, well, wait a second. But you got to remember in heaven, I'm not preaching. See? So if there were preachers in heaven, now then, now we might be talking, see? For me, heaven would just be this eternal sermon. But no, that, that's not how it works. I mean, there's no one to preach to. We're all, we all know as we've been known. So the, the, these ideas that we have about heaven are just, they're ridiculous. Just face it, they're just ridiculous. Heaven's splendor is to earth like an African safari is to a first graders laying out their stuffed animals on the floor of their bedroom. That, that's the difference. That it is so beyond. I mean, we're playing with, we're playing, we're playing safari with stuffed animals. And that's the best that we have to offer to try to comprehend what the Scripture has to say. And so to me, I'm just offended. I'm just offended by the the nonsensical garbage that is raking in millions and millions and millions of evangelical dollars. It just, I'm offended by that. It makes me angry to think about how many of you in this room have been a part of all this junk. Listen, do you, you need to talk to me. I'll help you invest your money in something that's useful. If all that money were given to missions, look at what would be happening. Instead, we're entertaining ourselves with ridiculousness is all it is. It's ridiculous. So we've got the garden. Secondly, I want us to look at the tabernacle. So then we... we, we move into this tabernacle time. So God, you know the story, he frees his people from 400 years of captivity with, uh, with the Egyptians, and he begins to move them out, and he's moving them towards the promised land. But after he moves them out, he moves them into the wilderness. So all of you should know, uh, if, you're, if you're, we're studying through Exodus right now on the Wednesday night, and if you're missing those, they're online if you want to pick up with that. But if not, you, you would know that, that wilderness training is a part of the Christian walk. That God leads us, always leads us through a time of wilderness because that's where our best training comes is in the wilderness. And so he leads the, the people of God from captivity into the wilderness so that he can work with them, he can minister to them, he can prepare them for where they need to be. And he, he makes a covenant with his people. And understand, God makes a covenant with his people not based on them performing doing the right things because he hasn't told them anything to do yet. You understand? That he led them out of captivity. I mean, he doesn't, we don't get to the Ten Commandments until Exodus chapter 20. We, we've got 20 chapters of God just pouring out his blessing, feeding and caring for and leading and, 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 and just shepherding his people. They don't have a single command. Then they got nothing. And yet he's making a covenant with them And there's not even any covenant for them to make back. 
He's just showing us what a great and, and, and glorious God he is. And he makes a, a, a covenant with them about his desire to dwell among them. So what happens is we get on into Exodus and God starts talking about a tabernacle. Because he wants to dwell with them. He doesn't just want to meet with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. He wants to dwell with the people. He wants people to have access to him. He wants to be amongst them. And so there's this conversation that ensues about this tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, the scripture says about the tabernacle, let them, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, he says. Exactly as I show you, you're to make it that way concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So God is very specific about every detail about the tabernacle. Why? Because God is an OCD God? No. That's not why. Some of you are like, oh man, I thought, you know, we were relating in a way. No, no. Your OCD, that comes from Genesis 3. That didn't have anything to do with the Spirit. Amen. I'm talking to myself. Lisa's not in here, praise the Lord. So he's very specific about this tabernacle. Why? He tells them every detail about it, where to place it, which way to face it, that it's going to be in the midst of them, right in the middle of them, pointing a certain way, made exactly a certain way with all the directives, all the details. I mean, every little detail is there. He says in Leviticus 26, he says, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. That sounds a lot like what? The garden, doesn't it? That now we're starting to see this, this, this little shadow is starting to ring of like, wait a minute, I remember something like that from Genesis. Yeah, and so God's moving to, to this place where he wants to be right in the midst of his people. In this tabernacle. But he can't just take us back to Eden. You see, that's the tension in the story. If you were reading the story and you were from the outside looking in, and you would, you would start to feel this tension like, well, why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just take him back to Eden? I mean, he's God. He, he parted the Red Sea. He makes food fall from the sky. He, he, he leads him by a pillar of fire and a cloud. Why doesn't he just take him back to Eden? Well, because sin has separated his beloved creation from him. And so he's now instituted this new way for him to be able to dwell among and to have fellowship around and to be involved in the lives of his people. Now this ought to just blow your mind right here because the, the sensible thing for God to do here is to just ignore the people. Just say the heck with you. Why is he even fooling around with us? Why does he even care enough to, to do all this? But yet he does. I mean, in light of at this point in the story, in light of everything that God has done and everything that man has done, it's insane that God would do anything else or even, even desire to be amongst them or have any relationship whatsoever. That's what's mind-blowing about the whole story at this point. So the tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system that ensues is all a way for God to be in the midst of and around these people with their sin. So this tabernacle, well, we know, for example, a lot of things about it, but let me just give you a few things that you need to think about. 
the, the, the materials that it was made of. Exodus 25, verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall make to them. You shall gather up the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the onyx stones. You should get all the finest materials and gather it up because that's what you're going to need to build this tabernacle. And it's going to be filled with all these incredible pieces of uh, the furnishings in the tabernacle are, are, are incredible. For example, there's a lampstand in the tabernacle. The Bible says that this lampstand is going to be hammered out of a single piece of gold. Now, just think for a moment about how enormous this chunk of gold is. We're not, we're not blending a bunch of gold together, but we're going to take one chunk of gold and hammer out this amazing uh, lampstand. The Bible says in verse 31 of Exodus 25, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold with six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, uh, three, and then three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Now, wait a minute. It's a lamp stand to give light. And God is saying, I want you to make this lampstand, but I want you to make it look like a what? A tree. Why? Because what was Eden filled with? Trees. What does the tree have to do with anything? It's, it's symbolic of Eden. What about the walls of the, the tabernacle? The walls are fascinating. The scripture says, Moreover, you shall make of the tabernacle in 26.1 of Exodus. You shall make the walls of the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue and purple and scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. Cherubim, these, these special angelic beings are going to be woven into the walls of the tabernacle. Why? What's the symbolism of that? What is the, the, the point of that? Why are cherubim there? Well, remember when Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were banished from the garden? And what does the Bible say about them having to leave the garden back in the end of Genesis chapter 3? It says, So God drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. To block it with a flaming sword. And so in the tabernacle, all these generations later, God's going to dwell amongst them. And he's going to put things in there that remind them of Eden. And he's going to have around the walls are going to be cherubim. To remind them of Eden. You see, could it, could it be that the, the whole reason for the tabernacle... that would be that God is just showing you how much He desires to have fellowship with you? That is, is not the whole redemption story of Scripture just screaming with a megaphone? This God is, is a peculiar God. He has a love affair and an infatuation with His creation that is mind-boggling. And it keeps us compelled to the story. He wants to dwell amongst his people. He feeds them. Well, what about the manna? Well, what about... Well, we had fun talking about manna a few weeks ago on Wednesday night because I was equating manna to Krispy Kreme donuts, which is the only thing I know of. 
I mean, I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what man is, but I know the greatest thing I can think of is a big Krispy Kreme factory dumping out of the sky. Like, I'm like, amen, that's got to be heaven, right? Hot ones. I mean, they come out, they don't even cool down. They like self-heat right off that conveyor belt. You can just stand there with your mouth open and just catch them, right? But I'm just saying because I don't know what else could be that great. But what does the Bible tell Interesting little tidbit about manna. In Genesis 2, remember when I was talking about the, the, the beauty of Eden? And in verse 12, the Bible says that the, the gold in the land was good and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And then all the way in the tabernacle age and all through the Exodus, when the, when the manna shows up, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 11 that the manna was like coriander seed and its color was like the color of Bedellium. He even made the manna the same color as the things that they were, the, beauty, the beautiful fruits and things that they were seeing in the garden to remind them of the garden. Now, now listen, because here's where I think your mind can play a little trick on you. If you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, but that's because, you know, He's God, and so that's what he likes, and so he's using that. Now, I just want you to think about something. Six plus billion people on the earth right now, give or take a few hundred million. Not one person has the same fingerprint as another person. That we serve a God who is so unlimited in his creativity and in his uniqueness that, that, that he, he never, he can produce billions and billions and billions of people and make them all different and unique in a thousand different ways. Listen, he's not running out of creativity. He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to point us to the reality that, hello, I'm reminding you of a place that used to be. He wants us all to think about this this morning and to reckon in our heart that I think it's good for you to think this morning about the fact that the God of the universe wants to be at the center of your life. I, I, I think you all went deaf for a second there. I'm, I'm not sure. I think just we had supernatural deafness that just took over the place. Did you hear what I just said? He wants to be at the center of your life. That is a shocking reality. Because listen, I don't know about you, but I'm just telling you, that's even hard for me to say because why would a... Holy God want to be at the center of my pathetic life. But he does. And I read the scripture and I read the stories of pathetic people and God pursuing them and desiring to be at the center of their lives. And doing all these little things so that they would think about what he's doing and why he's doing it. It would draw their attention to what, what this whole plan is that's unfolding before them. But you see, the, the thing is, you can't get there on your own. You, you can long to be in heaven all you want to, but you can't get there. You don't have the capacity, the ability. To, there's no potential in you. I mean, you're just not there. 
It's just not there. And so there's still a huge problem that's got to be rectified in the story. We're sort of at this roadblock moment where you're, when you're reading the story and all the events are starting to come together and then there's this giant letdown where what you thought was this tension now becomes this almost insurmountable place that, that all the stories that we love and all the stories that draw us in are really just stories that are, that are linked to the, the biblical narrative that's drawing us in. We, the, the need for a superhero to swoop in and to do the impossible. Now, there's a lot of people. The world is filled with people that have a lot of things to say. There are a lot of people claiming that they know what's going to happen next and they know when it's going to happen and they have all this inside information. Again, it's just a bunch of charlatans who are twisting and perverting Scripture into something that it doesn't say. And they're ignoring the simple fact that Scripture has told us time and time again that everything we need to know is there, but don't start adding to it. Don't start making things up. The theologian N.T. Wright, speaking about people who are predicting the future, prognosticating the future, he says that we're like a group of people that are caught in the fog. And as we're inching along in the fog, everyone is giving an opinion about what may may or may not lie ahead. But all the best we can muster, with all the, the, the thoughtfulness that we can gather together, is simply just a guess. Because we can't see through the fog. But N.T. Wright goes on to say, what would happen if someone came back from out of the fog and told us what was ahead. You see, that's the only solution. That's the only thing that would bring clarity where there is none. And that brings us to the third thing we need to look at before you can understand Revelation 21, and that's the incarnation. You see, we need someone to come back. We need someone who's been there to tell us what's there what it's like, what it's about. We need information from the source. Otherwise, we're just grasping in the dark. We we don't know. So this God who desires to be at the center of our lives, He does the unthinkable. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that word dwelt mean? We talk about it every Christmas season. Tabernacle. What that verse says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You think that's a coincidence? You think that's just a happenstance? Or is that a direct link to the tabernacle? That's a direct link to the garden. And now we're at the incarnation and the glory of the only begotten, of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the tabernacle of the Old Testament now becomes flesh and blood and dwells among us in the fullness of person. Why? Why not just continue on the way things were? Why not just keep on going with the temple and the sacrificial system? Why? Well, there can only be one reason. God wasn't satisfied with that. 
God wants more. This God who loves a people who deserve less wants more. He wants more of you. He wants more of you. He doesn't want you to just come to a a, a tabernacle and visit him. He doesn't want you to just come and, and, and never really know where you stand with him and bring your sacrifice that would only last for a short time. That's not good enough for him. He wants more than that. He wants more of you. He wants to, he's bringing us closer together, not further. And so he brings us into this new time. Notice what the Bible says in, in Matthew chapter one, behold, a virgin shall be with child. She will bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You see, it's all pointing to the tabernacle. It's all uh, the the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 that God desires more. And so even when Jesus comes, we're going to call him God with us because he's going to tabernacle among us because he's not satisfied with with the Old Testament system. He wants more, which is unbelievable, shocking. It's it's amazing. It doesn't make sense. What would make sense to me would be... That, that this virgin would bear a son and that we would call him God is angry with us. What would make sense to me would be that after everything that had transpired up until the gospel start, that God would send his son to scorch the wicked people. That would make sense to me. To... to right the wrongs that have been perpetrated towards him. That would make sense to me. But God with us? That as if everything that he'd already done is not enough, he's going he's gonna to come in the flesh and dwell with us? Why? What is the big sort of problem With the sacrificial system in the tabernacle. What's the, what's the big issue? Well, it's always sin. But you see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, sin is only momentarily dealt with. And the big problem with sin, the big sort of, you know, the culmination of sin is, is undealt with. Well, what is that? Death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death wasn't part of God's plan. Death wasn't in the garden. Death wasn't the way it was meant to be. And if God wants you and me to be a part of His his, uh, life, if He wants to be at the center of our life, if He wants fellowship with us, that that you, you can never desire more fellowship with God than he desires with you. Have you ever thought about that? That that it's impossible for you to want more of God than he wants of you. That God will never do anything that will lead you further from him. Think about the God that we serve. How good is he? And so he sends his son. Because death still lingers. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us about this death and how it's dealt with by the Lord Jesus. That through death, 
he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Oh. You see, you might say to yourself, now wait a minute, I'm confused. In the Old Testament, people died. Today, people still die. Oh, no. There's a huge difference. You see, other religions and philosophies are going to they're going to tell you things like, "Oh, death is inevitable. It's inevitable. So you should just do all you can to make the most of this life that you have." Or they're going to say death is natural. It's just a natural part of life. You shouldn't fear it because it's natural. Really? It's natural. The first thing I always think of, the moron that says that, you know they're afraid to die. You know they are. And they're saying, it's just natural. Well, it don't look real natural when I'm standing there next to you and you dying. I hear them on TV and I always think horrible, sinful thoughts. Like I just want to walk right out onto the platform and hand them a 38 and go, come on, show me. (laughs) Then I'm going to pull the trigger. I'm like, well, wait a minute. It's natural. I thought it was natural. Well, 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 well. Oh, so now there's, so it's not natural. It's not natural. It's terrible. Let's be honest about what it is. It's terrible. If you're trying to convince yourself it's natural, well, maybe that's why you got such a problem. It's not natural. You weren't made to die. Do you understand that? You were not created to die. That was not. No one died in Eden. Death is a consequence of sin. Jesus came to reverse the curse. You see, the gospel says the opposite of what the world tries to tell us about death. The gospel says that death is not natural. It's not natural at all. And it's not inevitable. The Bible declares that the reason we don't need to fear death is because death has been defeated. It's been defeated. That you don't have to fear it because it's been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus says in Revelation 21 verse 6, it is finished. It's finished. Death is finished. That's why he said on the cross, it's finished. The work that I've come to do is finished. It's done. The most important thing about heaven heaven is where you were meant to be. So everyone that's there was meant to be there and is experiencing what it's like to be what you were meant to be, which is a, something we can only dream about in here this morning? What would it be like to be the essence of what God intended you to be? Do you think for a moment that even in a room this size, with, with the unbelievable vastness of the creativity of God in this room right now, all of the intricate details that God has woven together to make every single person 
completely unique in their own way, do you think that what you were intended to be was dressed in white with a multitude of other people dressed in a white dress, singing the same song, doing the same thing, all the exact same? That's absurd. You, you think God used His best creativity now? You Let me tell you something. You ain't seen nothing yet. You, you have no clue what the creativity of God is like. All we have is just a sniff that something's baking in the oven. But one day we're going to get to taste it. And it is going to blow our minds. See, the thing about heaven is primarily... Jesus is there. He's there. And people right now are in his presence. Right now. People that we've known. People that we've had relationships with. People that we know their personality and their nature. Some people that we long to learn about their personality and nature. They're with him right now. And what's so great about Jesus being there is that he's the only reason anybody's there. That if it wasn't for him, nobody would be there. So the fact that the one who makes a way for people to be there is there just makes it all that much better. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom whom have I in heaven but you? You, Lord, there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. Because let's face it, the glory of heaven is so multifaceted. And there's so many different varying things that we could, we could talk about this morning that would, would, would cause our hearts to begin to, to just anticipate what this might be like. But at the beginning of the whole conversation has got to be Jesus is there with people. And that is amazing. He's there. And he's the only reason that anybody's there, that we can't get there because by doing good, good things, we can't get there by earning our way there. It, won't, it, it doesn't work. We can't act a certain way and get there. We can't hope a certain hope and get there. We can't do certain things and get there. I mean, we can't do it. We don't have the capacity to get there. We can't bridge this insurmountable gap between here and there. The truth is, if we're honest this morning, deep down inside, I mean, let's just be honest. I'll be honest with you. I don't deserve to go there. I don't deserve to go there. You didn't have to amen that part. That kind of hurt me a little bit. See, now when I say you don't deserve to be there either, that's when you amen that part, see? Not when I say me. I don't deserve to be there, to go there. What what could I have ever done? What could ever even begin the process of me convincing myself that in any way, shape, or form I would merit a place like heaven. 
No. And if I went there, I would just ruin it. I need someone to transform me, to remake me and renew me, to make me compatible with perfection. You see, I would have to, in a sense, my finite mind understands it this way, I would have to be created like Adam. And all I ever knew was God. And I thought the whole world was like Eden. And I thought everything was just amazing and wonderful. And I thought everything just just was phenomenal and beautiful and spectacular. And, and that, that just being with God was just the only way it could be. That would be the only way. Because all the days that I've lived and all the things that I've experienced have just have, have tainted me. I'm not compatible with heaven. There's little places in me that rise up sometimes and remind me that that God's in me. And sometimes I'm able to say things or do things that I know are beyond me and that God did that and I didn't do it. But there's a lot of other times where it is me. And it reminds me that I don't deserve to go to heaven. I, I, I sometimes hurt and feel this tightness in my chest when I think about I think about Jesus. I think about him being beaten. I think about him being spit upon and cursed and mocked. And I think about how that ought to have been me. Why would God do that for me? Why would he do that? What? I think sometimes that I might get to heaven and God would be disappointed. Like he thought that I was better than I am. You see, that makes sense to me. Maybe God doesn't really know me. He just knows about me. Maybe that's why he wants, he wants to be at the center of my life. But then I read the scripture and I know that he knows even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows the things about me that you'll never know, praise the Lord. He knows them. He knows the things that you think that you never say, but you think them. He knows all those. He knows the things that you intend and don't even do. He knows them. And yet he still loves you. He still loves you. And that from the beginning, when the garden was infiltrated by sin, God's plan was put in motion. And just in case you're wondering and you think, so God didn't see sin coming? Of course he did, dummy. He's God. 
But what's better? Being in a, the presence of a God who's always loved you and who's all you've ever known? Or spending eternity in the presence of a God who you haven't always loved? You haven't always known. He's not second nature to you, third nature, fourth nature. He's not nature to you at all. But that in your least deserving state, while you were yet sinning, Christ died for us. What makes heaven better? What makes God more glorious? In other words, there's a huge difference between you getting invited to the most amazing gathering you could ever imagine by some random person who accidentally sent you an invitation or that you just plucked it out of someone else's mailbox or were invited to go by with someone else and so you just get to tag along and see it. And it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's beyond anything you could imagine, but you're just sort of a spectator there. Or what if, what if you were personally selected by the host to be present at his feast? That in the midst of your least deserving moment, He wants you to know. And you will fully know when you get there how you got there and how much he loves you. We'll know that. And we won't be bored one millisecond Mm -mm. because we'll be in a real place and we will be, we will exist in perfection and we will eat and we will run and we will laugh and we will play and we will fellowship together and we will love one another and we will exist in our in our uniqueness in who we are but in the way that we were meant to and we'll never age and we'll never become sick and we'll never fret we'll never worry not only will you never sin you'll never think about sinning you'll never have a desire to sin that a wrong thought will never even come into your mind that you will exist in a place that you were created to exist in in perfect fellowship with your heavenly father in the one who created all that you know right now that's just a glimmer of what it might be that this is a you are living right now on a ball of broken yarn you can't imagine the waterfalls and the mountaintops you can't imagine the 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 beauty and the majesty the animals the creation the 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 constant variety the exploration of all the creative things that are bottled up inside of you that you have never really been able to process or fully utilize will just flow freely out of you because the one who put them in you and wove all those little intricacies together will put you in the environment where they will just flow out freely and you'll be able to use everything that you've fumbled around with to perfection, to perfection, forever. 
and ever and ever. And after forever, it won't even be the beginning. Because what started in the garden was not just the beginning of a story. It was for you to know this God is a very specific God. He's got a plan. And heaven's a huge part of his plan. You know what the Bible says? You keep reading through Revelation 21. You get down to verse 22 and the Bible says, John says, but I I, I saw no temple there. You see, all John's ever known is temple worship. All John's ever known is this God who dwelt among them. And then he got to experience this, this this incarnate God in the flesh who dwelt among them, but, but he's, a, he's accustomed to something. And when he looks at heaven, he goes, wait, there's something missing. There's no, there's no temple. You don't need a temple. There's no more sacrificial system. There's no more slugging it out. In the, there's nothing to separate you from the good Father who made you. Nothing. You're just there in His presence, in perfection, living the life you were always meant to live, in the body you were always meant to possess, in the joy and the joy that he created you to be in. And all of the things that we have grown accustomed to are gone. They're gone. No harp recital. No marshmallows. No endless singing. No. It's a new heaven. And a new earth. God is going to be our God. And we're going to be his people. Does a God that specific sound to you like a God who would go to all this trouble. All these lengths. To create a place that would be the default. End. For every human life. Does that make any sense to you? That you would just, you would just live and die and, and go there? Well, would it make any sense to you that, that of all, all of the detail and all of the, the, the trouble and the cost and the sacrifice that God has went through to, to put all of this together so that you would be filled with hope and know that heaven is a real place. It's a real place. And it's going gonna, it's gonna, to... It's going to have little remnants of this place. I always say, you know, I'm from Hawaii. I was born in Hawaii. And Hawaii will take your breath away at every turn. But it's just a little, it's just a little sniff. Just a sniff of what heaven's like. Do you think he went through all this and, 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 and did all these specific things to accomplish this specific plan? And then you're just going to die and end up there? 
I mean, what, why does the end of the story tell us there's going to be a separation? The sheep are going to be separated from the goats. That the flock's not all the same. That there's different things intermingled in. And that every person who has played loosely with the gospel, who has tried to navigate their own way through the process, who's tried to get as close to Jesus as they could get, just close enough to get what they want, but not close enough that they would, it would cost them anything. You, you know why we, we buy all the stupid books and waste our money on the silly movies? It's because it's a diversion from what the Bible actually says. We don't really want to think about what it actually says. But we ought to think about it. That nobody's going to heaven by default. Nobody. And what the Bible says that there's a whole multitude of people who think they're going to heaven. But they're not. And on that day, they're going to say, Lord, Lord. But I did this and I did that. In your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. You see, if we're not careful, we forget that there's a narrow gate. And the Bible says, few find it. As your pastor, I want you to know something this morning. Maybe your struggles and your doubts have less to do with the fact that you're just a little bit of an insecure person or that you tend to be extra hard on yourself and have more to do with the reality that You're really not going to heaven. You're really not. That at the end of the day, is Jesus the center of your life this morning? Is your time invested around his kingdom? Is your talent utilized? around his kingdom? Are your resources utilized around his kingdom? Or do you basically just live life the way you want to live it and then pay a little tribute to him on the weekends? Listen, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to speak to you from my heart. The Bible says few will find it. Few. The most terrifying thing to me is the faces that I look into week in and week out. That when I get to heaven, they won't be there.
Is it worth rolling the dice? No. And by the way, in light of what you now know about heaven, if it's settled into your heart, you can't live tomorrow the way you lived last Monday. You just can't. You can't look at your circumstances the way you did last week. That you have the opportunity starting today as we depart this place to begin to see your, your circumstances, the people around you, the world in which you live in, all the things that the, the struggles that you're facing, the things you don't understand, the things that break your heart, the things that make you want to cry, the things that make you want to scream, that you see all those, and that they're all temporary if you are in Christ. And that perfection is there. He said, I'll go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. He's already prepared it. There's a place at the table with a name tag. It's got your name on it for you, and it's waiting for you. So don't you you get out there this week and live like you don't have hope or don't have assurance unless you don't. But if you do, let that shape everything about you. Everything.